Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, April 11, 2021. It focuses on the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over Sabbath regulations. The message to all who will listen is Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and the Spirit is the source of all good things we know as believers. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. God, thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us, and thank you that we have a Redeemer who lives. We have a Redeemer who is living in heaven and interceding on our behalf before your throne, Father, and we thank you for Jesus. We celebrated last week his resurrection and know that because of his resurrection, our sins are not only forgiven, but they're, they're wiped away. They're, they're moved out. They're no longer on our balance sheet. We've been made righteous through Christ, and we have his righteousness, and we live in him. And I pray, God, today that your word would accomplish your purposes as your spirit speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you remember the first time that you received a death threat? Show of hands. Okay, there's one person here. All right, I remember mine. I was a few years out of college living in Indiana, preaching at my first church, and a pastor from miles away asked me and a couple of teens from our church to come and play on their church league basketball team. They were short a few men, and they needed somebody. We thought that sounded like fun, so we agreed to go. We went week after week, this group from our church, just a couple of us, two, three of us each week, and we went to play, and we had a blast until one night, I guess it was about halfway through the season, things took a rather unpleasant turn. That night, I was guarding a guy from another church when, while boxing out for a rebound, I inadvertently stepped on his toe. Okay? I thought little of it. Things happen when you're fighting for a position under the rim. You know, you might step on somebody's toe or something like that. So minutes later, the same thing happened. I took a step back to create space. The guy's toes came under my feet again, and I don't remember whether there was a third stepping on toes thing or if it happened right after this. All I know is that he got really mad. His teammates had to restrain him as he was spewing out threats at me and telling me I better watch out when I go to the parking lot, you know, like in the movies. That was happening. Now, obviously, nothing happened. Right? Here I am. I went out the gym door with my whole team. They all kind of surrounded me as we went out, and he was nowhere to be seen, and he never showed up to play again. I'm fairly certain he got asked not to come back, but who knows? Do you know how many times since that unfortunate skirmish that I've been threatened? Zero times. No threats, no death wishes. People have said evil things to me and all that kind of stuff, but never threatened my life. I haven't even been offered a cup of death wish coffee. Now, I'd probably take them up on that offer if I was, because I'm kind of curious what the strongest coffee in the world tastes like. In Matthew chapter 12, the chapter that we're ready to take on this morning, we hear for the first time some religious types who want Jesus dead. Uh, We hear that they want him dead. His actions in this chapter seem to flip a switch in their minds, and suddenly they can't stand the thought of him living to a ripe old age. 
What did Jesus do to incite such homicidal rage? Well, let's read the beginning of the chapter and find out. In the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 12, we'll see the terrible things Jesus did and watch as holy men react with over-the-top hostility. So, you ready? I'll encourage you to follow along as I read Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So why are these guys so upset? Did Jesus step on their toes? All kidding aside, you and I look at this passage and we scratch our heads, don't we? We might, depending on how we were raised, be a little bit uptight about what we think some people ought to do or ought not to do on Sunday, but we're not going to wish violators dead. Most of us will just keep our mouths shut or mutter under our breath or something and follow what we deem right and holy, allowing others to do the same. Not the Pharisees. They are loud about their opinions, sharing them liberally with all who come near and expecting everyone to bow and kowtow to their directives. In the first verses of this chapter, it's Jesus whom they're rebuking harshly. They are angry because he has not taught his followers the right way to observe the Sabbath. No work means no work. Just so we're clear. Let me read to you the law concerning the seventh day. As God is laying out the ground rules for Israel's relationship with him, that's what the covenant is. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're the the conditions of the covenant. He gives these Ten Commands, which he expects them to keep, and we find these conditions for relating to God in Exodus chapter 20. After the first few commands in which he establishes himself as the sole object of their worship and commands them to honor his name, he speaks briefly about this Sabbath day. He tells them to keep it holy and hints at what's allowed and what's not. Let me read the regulations concerning the holy day in their entirety. They are contained in four verses. Hear what God says about the Sabbath, and I'm reading Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. This is what God said to Moses and to the people through Moses. This is part of the covenant. This is how they stay in relationship. This is how they receive blessing rather than curses. 
Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to you, the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right. Can I state the obvious? God is pretty light on specifics here. He doesn't define in detail what his people can or cannot do on this set-apart day. He simply prohibits work. He even says the animals can't do anything. If you do a search for the word Sabbath in the New International Version of the Bible, it comes up 154 times. And in only one or two cases are there any explicit, specific instructions concerning the Sabbath. Most of these come from Moses' lips during the nation's wanderings in the desert. He's talking about they shouldn't go out to gather manna on the Sabbath, or they should cook it the day before so they don't have to cook it on the Sabbath. They can keep it overnight. It's the only night they can keep it overnight. Those are the exceptions. If you are looking to the Bible for what specifically is allowed or disallowed on God's day off, if you want to know whether this thing is work or that thing is work, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Everything is vague and nondescript. Mostly you'll find commands to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. What we see in Exodus 20 is what we see over and over throughout the Scripture. So why are the Pharisees so upset about a few heads of grain being picked by hand as men stroll through a wheat field on the Sabbath. It seems like they're citing some kind of rule book, doesn't it? They say it's, it's unlawful to do that on the Sabbath. Well, they are quoting from a book, but it's not the book that we consider the Bible. It's not the Old Testament books that we have, not the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. It's a book that most of you have probably never read. I have not read it nor are you likely to have heard of it. I know its name because of something that happened in the last couple of weeks. I know a little bit about it. It's called the Talmud. A few weeks back, while I was listening to this episode of the 10-Minute Bible Hour, which was focused on Matthew chapter 12, I learned a few things about the Talmud. This ancient book holds a written-down record of hundreds of years of oral law, kind of like case law. Sections of this encyclopedia of knowledge concerning Jewish jurisprudence are filled with word-for-word discussions about the finer points of, among other things, Sabbath practice. What could you do on the Sabbath? What could you not do? What was considered work? What was not considered work? You know, how far you could walk on the Sabbath without it being work? So there's all these rules. So page after page... There's do's and don'ts, rules far too numerous for the average person who probably didn't know how to read anyway to keep track of. So the teachers of the law, these scholars, religious leaders, they'd study this book and they would straighten out the average Joseph when he failed to comply with the strictures of these oral traditions, things that had been spoken in the past and somebody finally wrote them down sometime between Malachi and Matthew. This is that period where we don't have any scripture. It's just like 400 years where there's no prophecies. They're just writing down all this stuff, all these arguments that they had and these discussions. Straightening out the average Joseph is what's probably happening here in Matthew chapter 12. 
the guardians of Talmudic law are pointing out the disciples' failure to uphold one of these obscure details. They're attempting, it seems, to shame Jesus because they're calling him out for not teaching him well. It's kind of like you saying, man, your kids should know better than that, right? It's kind of like that. Don't do that to people. Anyway, they're trying to drive a wedge between the common folks who love Jesus and, and this, this guy that is causing trouble for them at every turn. Notice how Jesus responds. He goes to the writings that everyone agreed were written by God or inspired by God. He reminds everyone present that in history, men who the entire nation revered had broken the actual laws of Israel, laws which were more than man-made rules, things that God had handed down to Moses. And they did so in these two cases and were held guiltless. So Jesus first points them to an, an incident from David's life. The king of Israel, held probably in the highest esteem of any other king by God's people, was fleeing from an irate, murderous Saul. He had not yet taken the throne. He was just fleeing for his life. And he ate some of the bread from the temple, which was lawful, it says, only for the priests to eat. The future king was a lawbreaker. He actually broke this ceremonial law. But Jesus does not condemn him for doing so. Jesus next brings up the priests, the leaders of the people who, he says, desecrate the Sabbath when they do their work. So when they're slaughtering the sheep and the goats and the bulls and all those other sacrifices on the Sabbath day, he says they're desecrating the Sabbath. Now, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? It's pretty provocative. It implies that they have violated something holy, that they have shown no respect whatsoever toward what was considered sacred. So desecrates a pretty serious offense. But Jesus says the priests are innocent, even though they desecrate the Sabbath. Jesus then, in three short sentences, claims authority over the Sabbath, says, I'm the one in charge of this. And he calls these merciless Pharisees out for criticizing hungry men for innocently grabbing a snack while walking through a field. Don't think for a moment that these guys that Jesus is rebuking missed his claim to be Lord over the holy day, or the use of that loaded name, Son of Man, which was a reference to God's anointed one from the book of Daniel. Let me read real quickly a bit of the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He talks about the Son of Man, and it became a phrase that referred to God's anointed one or to God himself. I think you'll see that it's clear enough as you listen that the one that the prophet is speaking of is more than just a mere human being. Pay attention to what Daniel sees and how he describes the Son of Man. Here it is, Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So all people worship this son of man. 
He has ultimate authority. His rule is over an everlasting kingdom. Daniel is speaking of the king here. We see the coming of the Savior to the world. These things that we see in this particular place, though, the things we see the one with authority doing are things that we expect to happen when Jesus returns to take his church home. How he comes here in the clouds with authority is not how he came 2,000 years ago. Just a few months ago, we talked about Christmas and him coming as a babe in a manger, right? He didn't come then in the clouds with authority, but he's going to come in that way when he comes at the end of time. Do we see Jesus in the New Testament coming in power? Yeah. In the book of Revelation, John quotes these words from Daniel and also from the prophet Zechariah. And you find that in Revelation chapter 1, 4 through 8, I want you to listen to what John records in his book of the end times. I'm starting about halfway through verse 4. John greets the church with these words. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Son of Man. No one present in that Matthew 12 crowd missed his claim to deity. Having shut down the critics, Jesus moves indoors where he's again tested by the rules police. They want to get him in legal hot water, so they ask him a question. It's at the end of verse 10. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Seems like a dumb question to me. Why would it be bad to do anything good on any day? Of course it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Doesn't healing bring glory to God? Yes, of course it does. But the rules. Let's return to our discussion about that book, the Talmud. Why was the Talmud published? Why did the scholars nitpick over its minutia? Well, the 10-minute Bible hour helps us again. Matt Whitman, the show's host, recognizes the deep desires of the Pharisees as less sinister than we sometimes make them out to be. He does so without excusing in any way, shape, or form their murderous attitude. That's out of line. But listen to why they were likely calling Jesus out, why they had created this law. Think about the history of Israel. What had happened to the people of Israel when they didn't obey God in years past? In the time of the judges, they were repeatedly oppressed when they strayed from God. In the time of the kings, their enemies defeated them as a result of their rebellion against God. Then things got worse, and the whole lot of them was carried off into exile, into Assyria first, and then Babylon, because they could not manage to follow God's commands. What happens when you don't obey God? In their mind, you get punished. The oral law, the stuff that we find in the Talmud, the things that they're calling Jesus' disciples out over are an attempt to keep everyone as far away from disobeying God as possible so that judgment can be averted. 
The Pharisees were aiming to gain God's favor by their adherence to these exacting standards. They didn't want to be punished again. They wanted God to restore their nation. Not the worst of motives. You can see how this made sense in a historical context. The problem these guys ran into was this. They elevated their rules over and above people. Over loving others. They burdened people with restrictions which were impossible for most to abide by. They couldn't even remember them all. Then they judged men and women guilty by their made-up standards, men and women who were innocent according to God's inspired law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Of course it is. If you care about an animal that's gotten itself into a bit of trouble on the Sabbath, you can heal a human being on the Sabbath. The human is by far more important than any dumb sheep. Sorry, sheep lovers. It's true. So what does Jesus do? He heals the shriveled hand. It was the right and good and godly thing to do in that moment. If you or I were there, we would have gasped and applauded and said, that was awesome. Did you see that hand? It just, oh. The Pharisees don't even smile. They are angry. They stomp out of the room and start planning a lynching. Jesus was doing stuff which in their minds were going to get them in trouble with God again, and the oppression of the nation was going to go on and on and on and on. Jesus had to be stopped before he could mess things up royally, make things worse. Isn't it funny that the rule followers are about to kill the one that they've been waiting for for so long? God's plan of redemption is being played out before their very eyes, and they're missing it. They're missing it because Jesus doesn't fit the idea of what the Savior should be like. They assume that he'll be an even bigger stickler for abiding by the law than they are, that he will come in and conquer. How could he be less perfect in regards to the law than they are? Well, because he's not what they expect, not what they want, they seek to destroy him. And knowing their intent, Jesus goes incognito. Listen to Matthew 12, 15 to 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. It's not time for Jesus to die yet. So knowing of the plot being hatched against him, he retreats. He's not fearful, just wise. He keeps doing his thing, but more quietly, and in doing so fulfills this prophecy. Matthew shares the prediction from one of Isaiah's servant songs so that his readers can see again that he's the guy, he's the Messiah, he's the one that was foretold to come. Everything that Matthew includes in his story of Jesus' life, I think we said this last week, everything that Matthew includes in his story of Jesus' life is to prove that Jesus is the promised king. He wants his readers to see, and he wants them to believe. Are you seeing? Are you believing? Well, we're nearing the end of this morning's message, but I want to take 
in the next episode in Matthew's Gospel before we go. The Pharisees have not finalized their plans to kill Jesus yet. They're not sure exactly how they're going to do it, but they are lurking around. Listen to Matthew 12, verses 22 to 29, and see the great lengths to which they will go to discredit Jesus even before they kill him. And we're going to see his response as well. Starting at verse 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. So if you can't kill the guy, say he's in league with the devil. Seems a bit desperate, doesn't it? He's healing people for crying out loud. He's doing good deeds in God's name, displaying authority like no other has for decades. And the best the angry, jealous, hateful, murderous Pharisees can come up with is this. It's the devil. Jesus immediately exposes their faulty logic. He states the obvious. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it's going to fall apart. The prince of demons driving out other demons leads to demonic disaster. Makes perfect sense to me. It happens in everyday life, like when families are fighting and all that kind of stuff. It kind of throws things off. So Jesus ratchets things up a bit and asks a pointed question of the men who have shouted and pointed at him and said he's devil-empowered. He says, if I'm in cahoots with the devil, then who are your guys casting out demons by? Are they in league with the devil too? Are they driving out the devil by the power of the devil? Jesus fights absurdity with absurdity and then cuts to the chase, stating as clearly as he can that it is by the Spirit of God that he drives out demons and he warns his detractors, watch out, the kingdom of God has come and you are on the wrong side. Let me read just a few more verses from Matthew 12 before we go. I think Matthew 12, 30 to 32 will wrap things up nicely. Here's what it says, starting at verse 30. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The Pharisees are put on notice. Jesus tells them that they're playing with fire, saying he's healing by the power of Satan is blasphemy against the Spirit if, in fact, he is doing these things by the Spirit's power. Dishonoring God by calling him a devil will not be forgiven. Did you catch that? Here's the truth. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is God, and as God, he gets to set the ground rules for keeping the day holy. You and I have no more cause to get on somebody else's case about what they do or don't do on Sunday than the Pharisees had. 
we would do well to put off judgment and simply honor God together as we worship and look for ways to do good deeds in God's name all day, every day, whenever we have the opportunity. Agreed? This too is the truth. The Spirit of God is a source of all good which comes about as a result of our actions and of our prayers. When we cry out to God in Jesus' name, we cry out to him because we know that we cannot do what only God can do. We acknowledge our powerlessness freely. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. We see him at work in our congregation and in other congregations. For all we see of his work around us, we give thanks. The Spirit is alive and well in the world today, even if he sometimes does things that we think are like, what? May the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself, by his Spirit, lead you as you respond to his word today. Submit to his authority. Give thanks to him for his goodness. Ask for his will to be done. I offer you now just a few moments of silence to do business with God and to talk with him, to respond to his good word. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. I know I need grace and mercy all the time from you and from others. And I pray, God, that you would grant that. We thank you that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. You're the Lord of all things, but Lord of the Sabbath, and that you give us this gift of a day of rest and a day of worshiping together as a gift. Help us not to make it into a a rule thing, a law thing, or judge others for the way that they choose to treat this day, but to find joy and pleasure in being in your presence, enjoying life together as your church, as your people, as families, as friends. We just thank you, God, for the gift that you've given us in rest and that you are in charge of it and that you aren't looking for ways to condemn us. We thank you, too, for your spirit and the authority that you give your followers to live, not only live by the spirit, but to ask the spirit to do great and awesome things in your name. God, I pray that your spirit would, would prevail in all things in your church throughout this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.